Those are the sounds of a mob of Trump supporters breaking past police and rushing into the U.S. Capitol building last week. Their aim was to stop the counting of electoral college votes and essentially disrupt the Democratic election of Joe Biden. It was an unprecedented moment in American history. And it came after weeks of baseless claims by President Donald Trump and his allies that the election was somehow subject to fraud. No specifics have been given, and the president has lost a string of recounts and legal challenges. And election officials have certified the results of Biden's win at the ballot box. Since the violent event, the nation has been processing and trying to figure out what it all means and where to go from here. One question is, how can education play a role in helping people sort through false claims and misinformation? And how can schools and colleges foster a stronger sense of civic education and engagement? Hello and welcome to the EdSearch Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSearch. Today on the podcast, we talk with a history professor who thinks that not only can colleges do more to prevent future crises like this, but that higher education is partly to blame for last week's events. That scholar is Jeremy Surrey, a professor of public affairs and history at the University of Texas at Austin. His argument was published in an article just today in a scholarly publication called The Constitutionalist. I connected with him earlier today on Zoom. Here are highlights of our conversation. What was your first reaction when you saw images of this mob of Trump supporters breaching the U.S. Capitol building last week? So I was watching live uh, the uh, electoral count in the House and the Senate. I usually don't do that, but because of all the controversies this year, I was. And as we were watching, we were getting reports, both by social media and on television, of these growing crowds. And it was sort of like a slow, slow avalanche occurring. And um, it just seemed more and more unsafe. And uh, the first thought that came to mind uh, was of terrorism, of 9-11. I remember living through the 9-11 terrorist attacks. I'm from New York City. And feeling like those terrorists and what were they doing, they were using acts of violence to undermine the basic functioning of our democracy. And it felt exactly like that. Seeing these individuals carrying guns, dressed in you know, horrific things, you know, wearing shirts, uh, mentioning Auschwitz, running into the Capitol, what were they trying to do? They weren't trying to express a point of view. They were trying to stop the count of the electoral vote. It felt like a terrorist attack. It felt to me like 9-11 felt. It seems unprecedented. Is it safe to say this is unprecedented? It's unprecedented to have an attack like this on the Capitol. Uh, of course, the 9-11 terrorists intended to do that. We're pretty sure that fourth plane that went down in Pennsylvania was supposed to hit the Capitol. Um, but certainly since 1814, when the British ransacked our Capitol, we've not had this happen before. That said, uh, our history is filled with white mobs attacking uh, government officials who were seeking to protect the rights of African Americans and other minorities. So that part of it is an old story. What's new is having it set in the capital itself, not in Louisiana or Mississippi or Texas. Yeah. Now, there's 
you know, are you teaching any classes at the moment? I know we're in this this weird limbo for a lot of universities in January. Here, so our but... semester starts actually the day before Inauguration Day. And so I've been thinking long and hard about the large undergraduate course I teach this spring. I teach it every spring, U.S. history since the Civil War. It's basically 1865 to the present. And I'm going to open the course with this event. I mean, everyone's thinking about it. And I'm going to open by talking about the echoes of the 1870s in this event today. Do you know yet what you're going to say? I mean, what, what, do you, what do you tell your students? Well, I think one thing that's consistent in American history is that uh, when groups that have held power for a long time feel their power slipping, uh, they use violence to try to hold on as long as they can. They, they do not succeed in holding on to power. Our politics do remain fundamentally democratic, not equal, not entirely fair. Uh, but the challenge is in a democratic society, those who feel their power slipping away, they have a lot of tools to use, uh, vigilante tools, mob tools, sometimes trying to use non-majoritarian elements of our institutions like the courts. Uh, and that's what we're seeing today. This is not just corruption for venality. This is a, a fight to the death for some who feel they're losing power as our society becomes more diverse. And we've been through this before. And, and, and this is not a civil war, but it is the pattern of uh, domestic violence when we experience a period of, of demographic and power shift in our society. There's this article you wrote this morning in The Constitutionalist, and which is a, um, a nonpartisan, right? It's, it's, not a, it's, it's a nonpartisan publication around... Correct. It's, about law. It's, it's really a publication for people who study law and politics and democracy. It's a scholarly publication. You argue in there that universities actually are partly to blame for this unprecedented moment. What do you mean by that? I think we are. And I want to say, you know, I've spent my entire career in universities and I hope to spend another 50 years teaching and writing. I love universities. I don't want to be anywhere else. Uh, But I think we owe it to ourselves and to our students and to our society to take a long, hard look at ourselves. We are not the primary source of the problem in our society, but we're a contributing source. Our universities, just in my own lifetime, since I was an undergrad in the 1990s, have become more professionalized, more corporate, uh, more uh, driven by money than ever before. It's not to say that these were not factors in the past. Uh, but public and private universities every day have to fall over themselves to find new donors for money. Uh, And that's more competitive every single day. They're more competitive over rankings. They're more competitive over doing things that bring attention from people who have resources of one kind or another. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But what's happened is that has crowded out the discussions about civic responsibility about serving the public that used to be more common and more central to our universities. It's not that those discussions don't happen. It's simply a matter of priorities. Most people running universities today spend very little time thinking about civic responsibility. They spend much more time thinking about budgets, thinking about the politics of their university, and quite frankly, thinking about athletics. And, and my point is that that has infused our culture. It's created a hyper-individualist, materialist culture in our universities, more so than I saw when I was a student just you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, the title of your piece is Elite Universities Have Promoted Destructive Republican Leaders. But it, it sounds like you're essentially arguing that they're promoting a, a class of leaders that include, and maybe it's not even just Republican, but in this case, Republican with the events of this week. But you're saying that there's this sense of the leaders they're creating are not as civic-minded 
as you think they should be. Correct. I think the message that comes through in our universities is, especially our, our leading universities, is you as a student are very talented. You should use those talents to achieve as much as you can for yourself, not as much as you can for society. That said, I do see, you know, um, just like just like anyone, the advertising for colleges, you know, whether it's billboards driving around my town here or, you know, radio ads on, on NPR or wherever I'm hearing them, there, there is there is definitely a message of, you know, come change the world. And and it usually is kind of come, you know, kind of make the world better, be an innovator, be a leader, Um you know, there, there's definitely the the selling point universities try to make is that they're gonna they're gonna help the world. Sure, sure, of course. And and one of the points I make in in the article is it's in the mission statements of all the universities. It's front and center in their mission statements. It, that's the ethos. It's sort of like talking about student athletes when we all know that most uh, Division One athletes don't have time to be students, right? So that's the ethos. That that's the aspiration. That aspiration is still there. I'm not saying that uh, our universities are filled with worse people than the past. I'm a historian of institutions, and I'm saying our institutions infuse a certain culture, and they incentivize certain, certain kinds of behavior. And the way you get ahead today and the message you get once you're in the university is acquire as many skills as you can for yourself, make yourself into this super attractive person for different employers, and go get employed, go make a lot of money, and then give money back to the university. And that makes you a great citizen, right? And we honor the alumni awards. More often than not, they go to people who have given us a lot of money because they went out and did things that allowed them to generate a lot of money. I'm not saying anyone sat down and said they wanted to abandon our civic mission that we advertise. I'm saying that the incentive and financial structure has reinforced a culture of individualism and materialism rather than serving the public good. And we need to, as any family would in this situation, we need to look at ourselves and ask, are we doing things that incentivize what we believe in most not what's most convenient. And and so just to play this out, your argument goes that specific actors in this event, these events last week, like a Ted Cruz, are the ones that that are the, the leaders you're talking about, right? Because the, the actual people that invaded the, you know, capital were not um, products. I don't know if they were or not. I mean, they, they probably had a variety, a diversity of educational levels, let's say. But how, so how does, how does this, this critique you have like get to the moment last week? So many of the key individuals spreading the lie, and it is a lie that the election was fraudulent, were people who knew better and used their platform as elite graduates of universities to give credibility to this lie. So people started to believe this, not because a bunch of uneducated people were saying it, but because of a bunch of educated people with credibility were saying this. And Republicans are not necessarily worse than Democrats, but they have exploited universities better. Individuals like Senators Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, Representative Elise Stefanik, right? They are all graduates, I showed this in the article, of the most elite universities. They come through those universities, they use that privilege to develop networks, to raise money, to set themselves apart from others. And then when they get to the top, instead of honoring the values that those institutions are supposed to be about, they wanna burn them down. Why do they wanna burn them down? Because it promotes them with the people who couldn't get into those institutions. So it's sort of like, I want all the candy, and then once I get all the candy, I'm gonna rile up all the kids who didn't get any candy to destroy the people who gave me the candy once I have the candy, right? They're playing both sides of this, right? They're benefiting from privilege, and then they're trying to appeal to those who didn't have privilege. 
Uh, and, and I think that's terribly, terribly treasonous, actually. Now, of course, the interesting, another interesting thing about your argument is that these days you hear a lot about universities actually being too liberal and, and encouraging too much liberalism and progressivism that you're saying is actually missing here. So how do you square these? I think those arguments about left-wing indoctrination, they're without empirical basis and they're overstated. It is true in many parts of universities you have individuals who tend to have a political leaning to the left. They're self-selected, right? People who study climate are likely to be left of center. But there are other areas that don't get talked about that are very far right of center. Go to a business school and find me someone in a business school who's not a capitalist, right? Uh, the real point here is what really matters is who runs the universities. And the universities are run by people who are corporate leaders now. Uh, they might have been scholars at one point, but they become corporate leaders. If you're the president of a university, you spend most of your time managing alumni relations and managing your sports teams, which is basically an enter entertainment enterprise. Uh, that's what you're doing. And what are you trying to do every day on campus? You're trying to get the greatest efficiency to get students, the best students in, recruiting the best students in, and getting them out as fast as possible so they're as happy as possible. Uh, this, is, this is a corporate environment. It's really not that political. Faculty have their individual political preferences. But what happens in a university is closer to an assembly line than it is to some indoctrination. And, and I think that's part of the problem. That's, that's sort of how we become corporatized. It's not that a lot of good things don't happen. It's not that there aren't different kinds of biases. Uh, but if you look at it, what do elite universities produce? They produce elite people who go out and do really well for themselves. Sometimes they do well for society, but most of the times they do well for themselves. And as I pointed out in the article, in the last 10 years, we looked at the data, Republicans elected to Congress are more likely to have come from elite universities than Democrats. It's hard to make the case as a left bias when that's what's happening. It's really interesting. And so what do you suggest that universities do, you know, especially on the ground of, you know, is it, is it teach more civics? Well, well, so first, again, as I said, I love universities. I, I, this this self-criticism is born from all the good things we do. Uh, there are great discussions that occur on campus every day from the left and from the right about civics, about public responsibility. Those need to be infused into the culture of the institution. Those need to be incentivized every day. If you're a family and you're having dinner, dinner time conversation about the things you don't care about, you wake up and say, wait a second, let's talk about what we do care about, right? We need to incentivize those things. We need to put our resources into those things. So perhaps those are the places where we need to provide more funding for more activities. And fundamentally, what I really believe most of all every university can start doing right now is talking about this. University leaders have to say, we are in a crisis of democracy. Those who are coming through our universities, they are the leaders of tomorrow. We need to talk about this. We don't need to debate whether we like Donald Trump or not, but we do need to talk about how each of us can be part of renewing our democracy today. That has to be front and center to mission, more important than uh, whether you get the job at Goldman Sachs or you get the job somewhere else when you graduate. And, and that matters. The culture of an institution matters enormously for the large numbers of 18 to 21-year-olds on campus. You know, there's we've talked a lot about kind of polarization and the environment that has, has led up to this moment. Um, I, I'm, but it seems like universities are, you know, uh, it, it feels a little bit like if, if universities, can universities do much, even if you're describing all the things that you describe happen, there's a bigger 
you know, ocean we all live in that feels, you know, that has so many forces at work um, that feel like they're driving a lot of this polarization. I guess I, how how optimistic are you that 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 there could be a broader change based uh, if this does happen, what you're suggesting? So uh, I'm actually more optimistic now than I was three or four months ago, because I think what we've seen with the lie about the election is how many people follow elite cues. It doesn't mean that convinces everyone, but we know counterfactually, sitting here now, if on November 4th or 5th or 6th, the Republican leadership in Congress and Republican media leaders, all the elites, right, who went to all these universities, came out and said, we hate Joe Biden, but he won a fair election. We'd be in a very different place right now. It doesn't mean that all the people who are angry now wouldn't be angry. We wouldn't see this violence. We wouldn't see the difficulties we have right now. Those in elite positions cannot convince everyone, but they have enormous power to set the agenda for our country. And I think that's really, really important. I think that's where universities can have a, a real impact. Let's be frank. Our universities are producing the future. State legislators, business leaders, elected politicians. If they will do a little more to stand up for the truth, which many of them didn't do, that would make a huge difference. It doesn't solve every problem, but it makes our society a lot better. We wouldn't have had the events of last week uh, if the Senator Hawley's, Cruz's, Cotton's, uh, Representative Stefanik had stood up and said what they know is true. Uh, even if they'd done that in December, it would have made a big difference, right? Of course, some of them are still, they're still not, they're still not changing. They're, they're, they're arguing that, that somehow they're right and, and you're wrong and, and others, you know, that, that argue your position. Which well, are- and this is, and we have to call this out and we have to be as scholars who are attentive to evidence, we have to call this out. Here we are about three months from the election. Unless I've missed something, there's been no evidence of fraud. Zero. Nothing I no, can cite. And, and I, I, will, I will say, like, not that I'm supposed to have a position, but it seems like as far as the objective things that can be tested, it is all, the, the lawsuits have all been, been tried and, and they're over, and that, and that this election is, is, is certified. Yes. So I don't think this is a, an interpretive issue. You know, I'm a historian, right? I tell students there are facts and there are interpretations. The interpretations are usually the interesting things, so the facts are obvious, right? There was slavery, right? And slavery was bad. It was harmful to slaves, right? There was an election. It was a fair and free election. You might not like it, but that was the election. It happened. <laughs> and so uh, people with elite degrees who are lying about this now, that's what they're doing. They're lying and they're knowingly lying about it. It's, it does seem like, you know, there's this other thread, which I'm curious to get your thought on, which is a, a kind of a media literacy thread of, of like, you know, right now the, the major social media platforms, including Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, they have silenced the, the president because he's violated their policies. Um, and so his accounts are, are, are shut down or, or blocked in various ways. Um, that now is, of course, being argued over, um, over at least in some corners. But, you know, and of course, some people say that should have been done sooner, that this could have, violence could have been avoided had that been done sooner. Others say it should never have been done at all and that, that things should, that these social media companies are doing something wrong. So there's, there's, there's this debate. I guess the question is, how, what does this say about our ability to manage these, these information networks that are, you know, that are, that we're all living in these days? Well, we're reliving the history of the railroad. Uh, or, or the, the his, which is to say that any new technology that connects people in a vibrant, dynamic way always outpaces the initial legal structure. 
And so it is true. It is troubling. And I would say it's troubling that for three and a half years, uh, a small number of wealthy owners of these social media companies have allowed this garbage to continue. Things to be out there on social media that if you or I said it, we'd be cut off, right? Many of the things the president said long before last week would have had you or I kicked off of. Because, because we would be held to the rules, and they, and they were given an exception. Exactly. One of the rules is you're not allowed to encourage violence against someone else, right? So you or I would be kicked off either permanently or temporarily for doing that. And so the rules have been applied in ways that have been somewhat arbitrary and rules that were made up by the businesses themselves. Same thing with railroads in the late 19th century. And one of the great stories of the progressive era, one of the great stories of someone like a Theodore Roosevelt was creating a legal structure not to limit freedom, but to make a fair playing field with protection for basic national interest and freedom within that. And that's what we need to do. We need to have that intelligent discussion. The president, uh, Trump, has talked about simply throwing in all kinds of things to hold social media companies liable if they don't put the stuff up he likes. That's not the way to do this. One of the things, one of the agenda items for the next couple of years is for us to have a real discussion as a society with experts about what is the appropriate legal structure that we should have. I certainly believe there should be a federal law against inciting violence, inciting riots on social media. You and I cannot incite riots on the radio. We get cut off if we're on the radio. If NPR is interviewing us and we say something like that, that should apply. That should apply to social media and that could apply on all sides of the issue. You're bringing up an interesting, again, historical parallel. In other words, other communication mechanisms are not law as lawless or they're, they're not without regulation. None of them are. The only place that's without regulation now is social media. Newspapers are held to a high account. If, if, if a newspaper uh, jeopardizes national security, if a newspaper incites riot, it can be sued for that and has been. Those, those cases have occurred. The real wild card here, though, is that the president of the United States was making statements that that fell into these buckets, which, because I, I remember, you know, I've taken media literacy classes, written about them. And one of the things you do is like, if a smart way to use the internet is to go see who said it and see if it's from a trustworthy source. And usually the, literally you'd say like, oh, if it's from, you know, the, the white, the, the white house or the, you know, some, some major figure in, in, in the government, then it's true. And if it's, if it's by somebody you don't know who it is, it's in their in their basement, quote unquote, whatever this thing, like then it's not true. That that's smart media literacy. This is not this is not the reality we're living in. Today. No, th- this is exactly my point in the article, uh, and it's a slightly different take on it with Donald Trump. But we have people who are in positions that look like they're credible, using their credibility to do uncredible actions. And what we as a society need to do is hold people in credible positions to credible behavior. It doesn't mean we always have to agree with them, but they have to be, they have to be undertaking credible behavior. I will give you an example. I, I am not a huge fan of uh, Senate Majority Leader, and he's only Senate Majority Leader for a few more days, Mitch McConnell. But on January 6th, he gave two speeches where he laid out the constitutional reasons why the members of Congress have to only count the electors and not try to interfere with the vote. It's certainly not the way he wanted the outcome to go, but he used his position as Senate Majority Leader to tell a history of the Senate and the Constitution. And it's not just that I like what he said, it's that I think he saw his role that day as the person speaking for the Senate. People have to take on that level of responsibility. Mike Pence, to some extent, the Vice President, did that in the way he managed things. That's the ethos we need to infuse people with. And that's what, when we as, as readers, that's what we have to be looking for. Is this person using their position to do the credible work of that position or are they exploiting that position 
to promote something else. And it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. But there's no doubt that Donald Trump, at least since the election, has not been acting as president. There's no evidence he's done anything presidential, right? He hasn't made any serious announcements, taken any, done any serious work on COVID. He hasn't done any serious, anything serious on other policy issues. He has simply ranted about the election and tried to spread lies. So he might still be president technically, but that's not presidential behavior. Yeah, and it, it, we, we cover K-12 too. It seems like teachers who are already in session now, unlike a lot of university folks like yourself, they're in classrooms with their kids right now. And, and um, I guess any, any advice for, for folks, you know, kind of trying to, to kind of help people through this besides what we've talked about already? I, I think the most important thing to do is, is not to focus on arguing over Trump one way or another or over impeachment, but to talk about how we came here, what brought us to this moment, looking at the historical development. And, and one place to start could be just what we were talking about now, the evolution of the media. And how we as a society, we've been through this before, we are behind in catching up to the new technologies and new modes of communication. I, I firmly believe in one of my classes or one of your classes or someone else's is a, is a young woman who will do for uh, social media what John F. Kennedy did for television, what Ronald Reagan did for television, to use it as a way to bring people together and actually spread truth. But it's going to be the second or third generation of users. And so even in a younger classroom, let's talk about what are the changes that preceded this moment that have come up to now and that have brought us to these difficulties and how can we think about those changes as young people going forward? Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add? The, the, only, one, the only one thing I, I'd add beyond this is I do think this is a good moment for our society because it's forcing us to talk about how our democracy is supposed to work. And so I want us to remain idealistic. To, you know, when we see the deviation from where we want to be, that's sort of what I was trying to get at with universities, let's remember what we could be. And I don't want to criticize where we are now to say it's lost. I want to criticize where we are now to say we could get back to where we should be and do it even better. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for, for sharing your very fresh article that ran today. My pleasure. My- this has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we bring you conversations like this one, Please subscribe wherever you listen and take a moment to give us a rating or review. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Thanks, as always, to Tony Wan, our managing editor at EdSurge. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening, and be well.